The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And that on the whole, it is better to put AI security within the broader context of cybersecurity. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 3rd, 2023. Risks associated with the rapid development and deployment of artificial intelligence are getting the attention of lawmakers. But one issue that may not be getting adequate attention by policymakers or by the AI research and cybersecurity communities is the vulnerability of many AI-based systems to adversarial attack. A new Stanford and Georgetown report, Adversarial Machine Learning and Cybersecurity, Risks, Challenges, and Legal Implications, offers a stark reminder that security risks for AI-based systems are real and recommends actions that developers and policymakers can take to address the issues. I sat down with two of the report's authors, Jim Dempsey, Senior Policy Advisor for the Program on Geopolitics, Technology, and Governance at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, and Jonathan Spring, Cybersecurity Specialist at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. We talked about how AI-based systems are vulnerable to attack, the similarities and differences between vulnerabilities in AI-based systems and traditional software vulnerabilities, and how some of the challenges and problems with AI security may be social as much as they are technological. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 3rd. Jim Dempsey and Jonathan Spring on adversarial machine learning and cybersecurity. One of our guests today, Jonathan Spring, is currently a cybersecurity specialist at CISA, but his participation in the workshop that led to the report predated his time at CISA. The views he expresses today are his views and don't necessarily reflect the views of CISA or the U.S. government. I'd like to start by having you talk about why this report was written. What are some of the concerns surrounding the vulnerability of many AI-based systems to adversarial attack? Stephanie, it's Jim. I'll I'll jump in on that. I started getting into this issue back in 2021. I focus in my work on 
cybersecurity policy. Back when I started looking at this issue, I was familiar with the bias uh, issues uh, around AI. I was familiar with the mistakes in uh, facial recognition, etc. But I hadn't looked at it from the adversarial perspective. That is, what happens if somebody intentionally tries to attack a system? And working with Andy Grotto at the Cyber Policy Center at uh, Stanford, we started taking a look and looking at the technical literature uh, written, in, in fact, by uh, Jono and others. And I was astonished. I was really surprised to find out how remarkably fragile a lot of AI models are, particularly AI uh, based upon uh, machine learning uh, techniques, which we're now, uh, of course, increasingly familiar with given the emergence of uh, ChatGPT and the other open AI uh, products. But it turns out that an adversary can readily fool uh, particularly the uh, classifier systems, image recognition or voice recognition systems, uh, completely fool them into misreading the input. So a, a stop sign along the road uh, marked with uh, a few pieces of graffiti, uh, the machine will read it as speed limit 45. That was a Berkeley study. Uh, lots of studies showing how easy it was to full image classifiers that you present it with what to the human eye looks like one image and the machine completely mis misreads it because of data imperceptibly hidden in the image. And this has profound um, implications, obviously, as AI is becoming woven into so much of our governmental, uh, commercial, uh, personal tools uh, that we're uh, obviously dependent upon. And uh, Andy and I wrote a paper looking at this from a policy perspective and how should the uh, cybersecurity policy and AI policy governance uh, development, how should it address this security issue? Meanwhile, Jono and others had been writing about this from a, a technical standpoint. And folks at Georgetown, particularly Andrew Lone, had been uh, also writing on AI security from a policy perspective. And so we decided uh, last year to sort of pool our efforts and to bring together a workshop. We'll talk a little bit more about the composition of who we, some remarkable group that we brought together. But the idea was let's dig deeper. Let's keep this discussion going. Let's keep refining our thinking around how to understand, how to describe, and then how to address uh, the vulnerability of these AI, particularly machine-based systems. Jono, do you have additional thoughts to add at this point about the vulnerability of many AI-based systems to adversarial attack? Sure, Stephanie. Thanks, and thanks for thanks for hosting us. Um, thanks, Jim, for for working with us on this. It's been a real pleasure to work with such a great policy expert. Uh, I'm more of a traditional cybersecurity practitioner, vulnerability management, network forensics, that sort of a thing. From that perspective, you know why we wrote the report why, is to do with a couple of things. So of course, when managing risks, managing vulnerabilities, it matters if the systems are important. AI systems are clearly important in the world right now. At the same time, AI is AI systems are software systems. And we know from 
lots of different aspects of computer science, cybersecurity, practice, incident response, that all software has vulnerabilities. We don't expect the software systems that are AI systems to be any different. Um, but at the same time, my experience and my understanding is that the, M- the machine learning engineering and the AI engineering communities, while very sophisticated, are not well connected to the security operations community. And so I think that this report highlights some of those connection issues, right? I'm, one of the things in the report is these social connections are very important. And in my work around vulnerability management, that is also like ends up being a lot of the, the importance, communication, similar language, similar expectations. And this is a complicated area. It's important that we got such a large number of experts to come together and share their different expertise and make those connections. But that's that was what was important about the report to me. So I'd like to talk then a little bit more about the workshop and the folks that were involved in it. Both of you are listed on the report as workshop organizers. Can you talk a little bit about the workshop process and the multidisciplinary group of participants that came together for both the workshop and for the report writing? Well, for me, one thing that was important was that we needed to get, and we did get, at the table, industry people, people who are actually building the technology and who are supporters, uh, believers in the technology, but who recognize as well these security issues. And I wanted to get government people there. So, you know, my, my traditional approach on approaching any issue is I'm currently in an academic uh, setting, but I really, really want to know what's happening on the ground. And so... In putting this together, you know, we had myself as a lawyer, Andrew Lone, I think he's not a lawyer, but a policy person, John O from the technical side. We had uh, Ram Shankar Siva Kumar from uh, Microsoft. And then we brought in a, a mix of others, lawyers, government folks, someone from MITRE, someone from NVIDIA, someone from DeepMind, someone who at the time was at Twitter folks uh, in a Department of Defense. Uh, so to my mind, remarkably and, and, and very deep and broad set of perspectives on the problem, because the, f- the first question I asked at the workshop actually was, is this just hypothetical? Is this just a, uh, an academic concern? Most of the proof of uh, vulnerabilities had been uh, in university academic research. There's a, in fact, per day, there are multiple articles being published. Uh, someone keeps a running tab of these. Per day, there are multiple articles published on AI vulnerabilities. And I asked, is this just hypothetical? Is this just, you know, in the lab? And everybody agreed, no, this is real. This is, this is going to start appearing in the real world. And the time now is to start addressing it. And to me, that was one of the most significant takeaways from the whole workshop, which was, uh, this is real. And, and by the way, the National, National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, they basically came to the same conclusion and uh, others have come to the same conclusion that, that this is not just a bunch of academic studies. This is real. So I was very glad to see that in the introduction to the report, you all define some key terms. And to aid our discussion today, can you tell us what is meant by, for example, AI 
AI system and AI vulnerability? How 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 is the report defining those terms? Sure, Stephanie. I think definitions are are really important. I mean, to some extent, that's my sort of academic background coming through, and I definitely struggled a lot with how we wanted to define, especially the different vulnerability terms. As much as possible for definition of AI, we leaned on existing definitions because we didn't want to sort of make a new one when when other ones were adequate. So we talk about AI as generally machine learning systems or machine learning technology that is used to perform tasks that people consider to be traditionally performed by humans. I understand that there's some fuzziness with that, but that's the, the general gist there. An AI system is any system that's using one of these models as some sort of important component. So obviously it's a giant software system with a bunch of different parts, um, maybe a cyber physical system, um, sensors, etc. But something that is is using one of these statistical models uh, built with uh, machine learning methods. You know, a vulnerability in cybersecurity and information security is defined quite broadly on purpose, right? Because software systems are quite broad. They include cyber-physical systems already and so on. But so in general, um, a vulnerability in a software system is just any set of conditions or behaviors that allows for the violation of an explicit or an implicit security policy. I mean, security policy might sound a bit jargon here, but it just means the set of things that are allowed to happen by whom, right? Implicit is an important qualifier there because for various technical reasons, um, but also various social reasons, we can't totally enumerate the list of who could do what that's allowed, right? It would be impossible to list that whole thing. So sometimes you find out that a security policy has been violated because someone is able to do something that you didn't expect them to do, but you hadn't hadn't written that down yet. So an AI vulnerability is just any cybersecurity vulnerability in an AI system, because we don't really need to change that that vulnerability definition to make it apply to these cyber-physical systems or complicated machine learning systems that use an AI model as part of their software. Stephanie, in, implicit in all of what, or explicit in all of what uh, Jono was saying is, we placed AI within the bro- broader context of software cybersecurity that certainly in the report that Andy and I did in 2021, we said it would be a, a big mistake to think that you have cybersecurity over in one vertical and then you have AI security over in another vertical and somehow you you have to reinvent or redefine or reimagine security for AI. As Jono said, AI models, AI products are, are software and we have a framework, or it's still evolving, but a framework for cybersecurity. And that on the whole, we'll talk about some of the differences, but on the whole, it is better to put AI security within the broader context of cybersecurity. And I would note before we continue that the report also defines a high risk AI system. Can you tell us how that term is used? So thanks, Stephanie, for pointing that out. A high-risk AI system is is certainly an important subset of AI systems to talk about. The general way that we talked about that at the workshop and that the the readout talks about this is that any AI system, right? so any software system that uses a machine learning model, et cetera, like we just said, 
that is intended to automate or influence some important or socially sensitive decision, right? So certainly you see things, things that affect housing decisions, credit, employment, healthcare. Those systems have an outsized impact on human well-being, human safety, right? And we just wanted to call those out as particularly important systems to be aware of. Uh, you know, as we note in the report, there is focus on those systems from a fairness perspective, and we wanted to highlight the overlap in both intent and impact that, you know, those are high risk for fairness discussions that are important to pay attention to. They're also important to pay attention to from any sort of security perspective. You know, of course, fairness and security are not really separable from the from a technical perspective. And so that's the sort of system that we are talking about as a high-risk system. At the beginning of the report, the authors note that although the repertoire of attacks studied by adversarial machine learning researchers is expanding, many of these attacks are still focused on lab settings and a holistic understanding of vulnerabilities in deployed systems is lacking. So while the workshop participants generally shied away from suggesting a need to impose sweeping regulatory changes, everyone agreed that the risk of attacks on AI systems is likely to grow over time, and thus it's important to begin developing mechanisms for addressing AI vulnerabilities now. And a large portion of the report is thus a set of recommendations in four parts, and I want to talk to you about each of these parts. But before we do, I'd like to talk about an observation also made at the beginning of the report. And, and it, it is that at a high level, we emphasize that although adversarial machine learning is a complex field with highly technical tools, the problems posed by AI vulnerabilities may be as much social as they are technological. Can you give us some greater insight into this observation? I think the first element of that is awareness. And uh, we see it now, actually, with this phenomenally rapid uh, rush to deploy uh, in a wide range of contexts the uh, tools uh, and products developed by OpenAI. And you've just seen, you know, announcement after announcement after announcement in the past oh, three or four months since uh, November of last year of uh, new inclusion in Bing and now inclusion in uh, 365, Microsoft 365, and the o open AI API, which is allowing many, many companies to use this, et cetera, et cetera. And the first sort of social hurdle or social issue is, are people adopting these systems really aware of the vulnerabilities that they may be taking on board? And um, with the pressure, the sort of competitive pressure, the business pressure, market pressure to utilize AI more and more, you know, faster, cheaper, better, are companies, developers, product managers, executives, even aware fully of the risks that are entailed with these systems? And I think our shared conclusion was no, all too often they are not aware of the risks. And 
Uh, do they have systems in place to mitigate those risks, uh, to identify them and mitigate them? No, too often they don't. Those are cultural issues, uh, corporate cultural issues. They are social issues. They're not technological issues, and they're not really legal issues either. I'd like to highlight another layer at which this might not be obvious to all of the, the listeners here. So I think that the coordinated vulnerability disclosure process, vulnerability management, those organizational functions sit pretty squarely in cybersecurity. And because of that, I think people think that they are wholly technical enterprises. And while we do use you know, our own jargon, it is technical, it is about what the computers are doing or what can be done to them, coordinated vulnerability disclosure is a social process for how the technical people share information in a timely manner with the right people, excluding the wrong people, so that the computers can be remediated, mitigated, the problems can be fixed. The problem that we're facing with AI engineering and communicating problems with adversarial machine learning is very similar, right? It is a very technical problem. There are very important technical details. It has to be discussed in technical jargon in order to get fixes completed. But if there's a fix available and no one who operates a system knows that they have a problem, that they need to fix it, that the fix is available, it certainly won't get deployed. So this is a social problem at many levels. It's not just a sort of policy or social, like sort of societal problem within a technical underpinning. There are various ways in which this is an importantly human-to-human problem and not just, you know, at some point you get deep enough into the machine and then it just becomes technical and you don't have to worry about people anymore. The first set of recommendations that is discussed in the report surrounds the topic of extending traditional cybersecurity for AI vulnerabilities. Um, and Jim, you touched upon this a bit, but it's worth asking, are attacks on AI systems new? And, and what kinds of attacks are likely to grow, do you think? So you're right. At, at some level, they're not new. Certainly, when you think about spam filtering, for example, you could argue that for quite a while now, spam filtering has had elements of artificial intelligence to it. Um, at least it's been algorithmically, uh, probabilistically based. And for as long as defenders have been doing spam filtering, malicious actors have been working to evade uh, spam filters. And, you know, that's part of the landscape, part of the cybersecurity landscape now. Our conclusion at the workshop, and to, to me, it was a very interesting point. And in fact, I think it was Jono who made it. Where we are going to see the deployment of adversarial AI is in the areas specifically where there is either money to be made, as there is in spam filter evasion, or where there is nation state uh, interests at stake. So the attackers, in, in order to turn to, the, to AI as a, as a vector of attack, and obviously on many systems there are many vectors of attack, we will see the, an increase in AI attacks where there is either a monetization 
opportunity or where there's a nation state attacker opportunity. And you have to worry, obviously, and the DOD, the Department of Defense is clearly worried about weapon systems, uh, which are, you know, becoming increasingly interwoven with uh, multiple AI-based systems. That's an area of high, obviously, high criticality and high payoff for the adversary who successfully uh, compromises the AI-based systems of, uh, of its opponent. Jim summarized that quite well, right? There's both this aspect of there's nothing new under the sun. Everything has some sort of way you can connect it. And also, things are, are importantly different because the world has changed, the situation has changed. I think it's important to connect with that machine learning systems are not new per se. As Jim pointed out, there's been machine learning for web search, spam filtering for going on 20 years, at least, if not more. And for as long as those systems have been deployed, people have been trying to abuse them, misuse them, subvert them, get around them. And at the same time, those were systems that in the context of coordinated vulnerability disclosure, we wouldn't normally need to do coordinated vulnerability disclosure, because if one organization owns the one mail processing center with the one spam filter, then if they have a problem, they know about it and they find it and they fix it. And we don't need to publicize that in the same way in order to get that problem addressed. There are definitely nuances to that that we're glossing over here about how you know attacks tend to target multiple different organizations that do similar things and so on. But What's happening, I think, with the explosion in sort of AI engineering, ML engineering, where people are better able to publish an open model, some other organization might take it in, use it, adapt it, transfer the learning, change it to a slightly different context, right? You end up with a lot of essentially supply chain problems that then lead to the need for better communication and coordination, cybersecurity processes. These are not that different from that when you use open source software um, that uses, say, some particular logging process, which shall not be named, uh, that you might end up with some problems down the line because you've imported some sort of vulnerability you weren't aware of at the time you imported the software from someone else. So I think that's one of the key aspects that makes this more pressing presently from a cybersecurity, information security perspective, this increased complexity in the supply chain for production and use of machine learning models creates a pressure for better communication that was not there in the same way that it, that it is now. That supply chain point is huge. Um, you know, I mean, we look at solar winds and what a remarkable attack that was, both in terms of the technology behind it, as well as the, the breadth of it. And I think there are you thinking about using the supply chain lens to look at AI vulnerability, I think is uh, critical. So I just want to pound on that point. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then... Weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout.
That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So then you have, you know, emphasized some of the the similarity in thinking through AI vulnerabilities and, and traditional software vulnerabilities. But are there important places that you'd like to talk about where they might differ? Thanks, Stephanie. I mean, one of the places that we talked at the workshop about important differences that really sort of surfaced up and rose to a consensus is the difference in the importance of the data to the outcomes, both in that you know training data, if it's manipulated, can obviously influence what the model becomes. And also these other kinds of attacks where you can potentially infer what data was used to train a model if you have access to the model or even just the ability to query it, you can sometimes reconstruct the data set. So what that means for adequate privacy protections is quite complicated given that the design of a machine learning model is to embed statistical facts about the data into the model so that it can be used to make inferences. And also how the data being central to the development process changes software engineering, which normally doesn't have to have unit tests and these sort of technical things that people use to ensure robust and repeatable engineering processes. It's not entirely clear how to extend that to data in the first place. And then the security implications of that is complicated. It's not that traditional software systems don't have data inputs, but the importance in an AI system is just bigger than it is for many traditional software systems. Jim, do you have other aspects that you'd like to sort of talk about the differences? Well, I think another big, that's a, that's a, such an important one, but I think the, another major difference is so much of vulnerability management in the traditional software world is based upon the patch to fix model. That is, uh, bugs are identified, if you have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure system and it's being followed, the bug is reported to the software developer confidentially, leaving enough time for the developer to adopt and push a patch. Of course, the, the minute the patch is pushed, then the bad guys, if they haven't already known about the vulnerability, become aware of it. But if everybody is good at patching, which not everybody is, obviously, but you can get the vulnerability fixed. So it, the, the traditional vulnerability management cycle is based upon the fact that the vulnerability is fixable. But in the AI context, some of these flaws, to some extent, are inherent in the nature of the, the technology. And, you know, our definition, almost everybody's definition of artificial intelligence is a set of technologies that enable computers to learn to perform tasks traditionally performed by humans. But the critical point to appreciate here is that AI does not do those tasks the way a human would, and that the, the AI functions fundamentally differently in some ways from the human brain, even though we talk about neural networks, the neural networks and AI don't actually work like the neural networks in the brain, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the, the flaws 
are to some, or the vulnerabilities are to some extent the result of this interaction between the training data and the algorithm. Of course, if your training data is poisoned, you're cooked. But even if your training data is pure, still these problems can arise and can be identified and discerned by an attacker, and they may not be patchable, which then pushes the deployer of the system to the other part of vulnerability which management, which is not to fix the vulnerability, but figuring out how to live with it um, and how to mitigate it rather than remediate it. So that's a big difference. And we have to acknowledge that. Even those of us like myself who say, look at, look at AI through the lens of cybersecurity and take all of your existing cybersecurity structures and policies and make sure that you apply them to AI and don't let the sort of AI developers be over there in their own little bubble, but force the integration of your cybersecurity governance structure with your AI governance structure. Absolutely. I, I still believe that's the, the way to address AI vulnerability within the context of existing uh, cybersecurity frameworks. But you do have to acknowledge that there is this very different nature, which dictates some different trade-offs in the sort of cost-benefit analysis, because sometimes the only way to get rid of the vulnerability is to tear the whole damn thing out and build it all over again, which can be highly disruptive because it's the AI has become interwoven with so many other functions inside of an organization. I found that to be a really interesting observation. Jono, did you want to add? Stephanie, I would, I would like to. I mean, I was a little bit of the sort of terminology task driver for this. And so Jim might be, you know, having some flashbacks about being annoyed at me. <laughs> but the the traditional in traditional software vulnerability management is is doing more work than people might might expect. So traditional for the for workshop participants really meant desktops, phones, servers. Right? We there's a whole other breadth of cybersecurity that is industrial control systems, cyber-physical robots, medical systems, all of these other things that are also non-traditional cybersecurity systems are also not actually very well integrated into the mainstream of cybersecurity operations mm. um, and have some similarities with, with some of these things. So I just wanted to point out that cybersecurity maybe doesn't have the best tools for the sort of safety engineering that Jim is talking about. Um, for making sure that the system is resilient and robust and doing the mitigations and making sure they're in s the ability to do those is designed in from the beginning ahead of time. But some of the safety engineering folks in industrial control systems and so on have that expertise in cybersecurity is working to bring that in and integrate that. And I, I wonder, and I don't think that the workshop had a, had a complete answer here because we just, you know, there's so much to talk about, but just a flag for folks that there's Within all of these, within the ML engineering community, within the policy community, within the cybersecurity community, of course, there's different subgroups that might not all be able to be in contact. And I'm, I'm interested to some extent in you know, how much the AI vulnerabilities are not the same as traditional cybersecurity vulnerabilities, but might have interesting similarities with other non-traditional cybersecurity vulnerabilities, but we weren't totally able to explore that in the paper. But I think it's flagged there in the definition of what we count as a traditional cybersecurity vulnerability. 
So notwithstanding all of these challenges, the report does make some recommendations with respect to addressing vulnerabilities in AI systems. Can you can you talk about some of those recommendations? That's a great question about the different recommendations. There's four broad categories of recommendation and some some smaller details in there, but the high level it's extending traditional cybersecurity for AI vulnerabilities, improving information sharing and organizational security mindsets, clarifying the legal status of AI vulnerabilities, and supporting effective research to improve AI security. Are any of those that you'd like to talk about in some more detail? I I think the fourth one is quite interesting to me. So there are at least three parts. And of course, the workshop is not exhaustive, but these are three things that the workshop participants flagged as important to supporting effective research to improve AI security. So improving the collaboration between adversarial machine learning researchers and cybersecurity practitioners. Public efforts to promote AI research should emphasize AI security, including potentially some funding or increased funding for open source tooling that can promote more secure AI development. And finally, that policymakers should move beyond simple standards writing towards providing test beds or enabling audits for assessing the security of AI models. Jim, did you have a favorite recommendation? Well, you know, as I always say, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, uh, not a technologist. So uh, we spent considerable time at the workshop talking about the legal framework. And at the end of the day, we adopted the sort of, you know, I don't know, legal precautionary principle of uh, let's do nothing for now. And again, it fit with the overall theme of the workshop and the report, which is we have a lot of processes, we have a lot of governance structures, let's make them work. Or um, in the case of information sharing, we know uh, how to do information sharing, let's make information sharing work in the context of uh, discussions company to company, uh, peer to peer uh, uh, around vulnerabilities. But in the legal context, you know, uh, high risk systems, we define, among other things, to focus on those systems that uh, make decisions about people, employment, credit, housing. And we have laws on all of those that prohibit uh, discrimination. And the Federal Trade Commission, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Department of Justice, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau have all issued uh, guidance. Um, The New York State uh, Commissioner for Insurance has issued guidance. Um, All of them basically saying the use of AI-based systems to uh, make decisions about who to hire, about who to rent an apartment to, about who to give a loan to, those decisions are all covered by existing law. And of course, in all of those areas, algorithms have been used for a long time. I mean, your, your FICO score is determined by an algorithm. And in all of those cases, the um, in regulators, the enforcers of those laws have said, um, just because it's got the label AI slapped onto it, and some things that have the label AI slapped on them may not be you know, true machine learning based systems, but simply sophisticated algorithms. But calling it AI does not create this law-free zone. You are not somehow exempt from the rules of uh, accountability uh, and non-discrimination that that apply. 
And we also took a, a bit of a deep dive on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the statute which you know very well, uh, Stephanie, and a, a statute that has obviously been quite controversial over the years as applied to uh, security researchers. Again, recent guidance on that from the Supreme Court in the Van Buren case, recent guidance on that from the Department of Justice saying that it will not seek to prosecute good faith uh, security researchers. On the other hand, uh, fairly aggressive use in, in many respects of that authority by the U.S. Department of Justice against nation state actors and uh, ransomware, etc. So at the we said it's just too early to legislate, and particularly with the CFAA, any changes to that could have wide-reaching ramifications and all kinds of unintended consequences and throw us back into the uh, stew of uh, what's what's legitimate uh, research and uh, how, how should good faith security researchers be treated. Uh, we decided it, we just cannot open that can of worms now. It, it's just premature. The existing laws, including the Federal Trade Commission Act's unfair and deceptive practices uh, prohibition, uh, as well as the anti-discrimination laws, as well as arguably the False Claims Act um, in terms of systems uh, provided to the government under government contracts. All of those laws, let's just work with them, apply them. They more or less work, sort of with an emphasis more on the more working than less working. And at the end of the day, we did say that the enforcement agencies, the regulatory agencies, do need to continue to clarify how AI-based security concerns fit into their existing regulatory structures, but just not the kind of thing that Congress can, at this point, have much meaningful uh, to offer. And so we recommend it against any changes, particularly to the CFAA, but even more broadly, we said we're not ready to say what an AI security law would look like, assuming you even want an AI security law as opposed to, again, a cybersecurity law. So I very much take the point on uh, the problems and challenges with trying to extend the CFAA to uh, cover AI-based attacks per se. But you do talk about in the report extending and adapting cybersecurity law to address AI vulnerabilities. And it seemed to me that while looking at this approach, you simultaneously recognize that, you know, cybersecurity law was still in flux. And and so there are some inherent challenges here. Absolutely. No, no, no. We, you know, we have this beautiful sentence here, uh, just as AI fits, albeit uneasily within traditional cybersecurity risk frameworks, so also it is covered under under existing law, but in ways and to a degree the courts and regulators have not yet fully clarified. So, but, you know, that's not unlike the industrial control systems that Jono refers to. It's not unlike traditional software. Um, We do have an evolving uh, set of laws, you know, some of them common law doctrines dating back centuries, laws of negligence and contract. We have the early 20th century 
unfair and deceptive trade practices laws. Now we have a sort of a new generation of uh, uh, requirements. We have the word reasonable in 24 state laws, reasonable cybersecurity measures. We have the FTC enforcement, et cetera. But our overarching point was, as that cybersecurity crazy quilt is being stitched together, let's not assume we have to start stitching together a separate quilt of laws for AI. Let's start with the assumption. And and by the way, that's sort of been my approach to tech policy, tech law generally. Start with the assumption that your existing laws work. Start by figuring out how to fit any new problem into the existing frameworks. And then only when it's clear that adjustment is needed do you act. And right now, it's still, to me, and I think to the, to the others on this report, it's, there's still no clear need to develop a separate set of laws for AI. So, Jim, while the working group was meeting and you know, engaging in discussions that led to this report. I, I know you're familiar with the fact that the Biden administration was in the process of developing the national cybersecurity strategy that ended up being released in March of this year, you know, relatively shortly before this report was issued. And, and we learned in the national cybersecurity strategy that the Biden administration believes we should be developing new liability standards for software and more broadly be looking to shift responsibility onto those entities who are in the best position to secure our software and our systems. How might all of that touch upon or perhaps not touch upon AI security? Well, again, exactly. And going back to our our theme, that law or set of policy legal changes that address the question of software liability, that should be done with an eye to AI. But as as John said, as we say in our report, uh, AI products are software. And um, whatever we develop for uh, software in general, and however we choose to define the standard of care, the first, first hurdle in You've written about this for Lawfare, Stephanie. The first hurdle that we need to cross in, 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 to get to the promised land that's envisioned in the uh, national strategy, the first hurdle is defining what is the standard of care? How do we define what is good enough software? Jono said, uh, we don't expect and we're never going to get a perfectly secure software, whether it's AI-based or other, otherwise. We're never going to get to perfection. So we're looking at something less than perfection. How do we define that? So far, we've come up with one word, reasonable, uh, reasonably secure, reasonable technical, uh, administrative, and uh, physical measures to protect systems. So how do we define the standard of care as we do that in the course of addressing the software liability problem writ large, we need to keep in mind software systems. But I don't think need or want, and it would be a nightmare to try to have one software liability standard 
for AI software and one software liability standard for all other software because they're increasingly just one and the same thing. Fair enough. I appreciate that we've been going a bit out of order of the report's recommendations, but I I don't want to leave out the second topic of recommendations, which is improving information sharing and organizational security mindsets. And so I wanted to know whether and why, if it is, why is it difficult to assess how large the threat of attacks are on AI systems? Well, Stephanie, I mean, I know this sort of goes across some of the recommendations. And I was actually thinking that maybe recommendation 2.2 might be my favorite, which is not exactly, it's part of assessment, right? Without a security culture, without a real commitment to sort of build security in from the beginning, to build both incident management, which includes detection as well as reporting, but also vulnerability management, which includes detection, triage, reporting, and then broader communication structures, industry or trade groups, or just groups where like-minded people with similar problems can share their security issues in a trusted space, becomes quite hard to assess what's going on. In traditional security assessments, you know, the first thing that happens is you have to start looking for the problems before you can assess how bad they are. And it's unclear to us as, as the workshop went on, it's unclear if there's a regular regimented sort of way that people are looking and then assessing reporting, right? We talk a little bit in the report about the AI incident database. Incident to the cybersecurity community always means sort of computer security incident. And there's a whole set of structures around computer security incident reporting and response. That's what a CERT is, Computer Security Incident Response Team, a team of people who do computer security incident response. But with the AI database, that community is looking more at sort of safety, fairness, robustness failures, which are obviously important and maybe are safety failures, um, but incident is used in a different way. And I, I know that I keep coming back to sort of terminology and maybe that sounds a bit in the weeds, but of course it's quite hard to communicate about how bad something is if one community is using one word in one way and another community is using exactly the same word but in a different way that's exactly how we're going to end up with communication sort of at cross purposes where we think we understand each other but we're actually talking about different things and i think that's why it's so hard to assess the state of affairs right now the ml engineering and ai engineering communities have developed some of their own terms some of them overlap with the cybersecurity community, for sure. Maybe Jim can talk about whether they overlap with the policy community. He's a much more well-versed in that than I am. But what I have recognized and what the report talks about a little bit is these spaces where communication is hard, not because the experts aren't attempting to talk, although they aren't maybe talking quite as much as the report thinks we, you know, maybe they should be, but also where the terms being discussed are not just not connecting, but they're crossed in a way that sort of causes miscommunication. So that's why this whole topic area around improving information sharing is not just about getting people in in one room, which of course it is, 
but it's also about driving sort of genuine communication, genuine connection on topics of importance, like really harmonizing what we mean by our processes and and the operational aspects of like how some terms get cashed out into what we actually do differently. And that's going to be quite a challenge, but I think it's something that the communities are definitely, you know, they're up for, they have the skills for, it's important. It's important that they're encouraged to do it. That definitely gets at why it's so hard. In the context of improving information sharing and and organizational security mindsets, I, I think the report makes an important point that in the context of high-risk AI systems, it's really important for developers and deployers to prioritize transparency. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I think that the first question is, is this, does this particular product have AI capabilities built into it? Um, what are they? We're actually at Stanford working on a paper on how to apply the SBOM, Software Bill of Materials, concept to artificial intelligence. Um, and just as we argue in this report uh, here that the concept of uh, vulnerabilities, vulnerability management, the cataloging of vulnerabilities through the uh, common vulnerabilities and exposure CVE system, uh, that these should encompass uh, and include AI vulnerabilities. A lot flows from sort of getting a CVE number. So also, we don't say it in this report, but <laughs> We're about to say it in another report coming out of Stanford that the SBOM concept can be applied to um, artificial intelligence-based products so that things like what was the training uh, data set that was used, what was the basic uh, methodology uh, used for the training, these are kinds of things that increasingly should be that should be disclosed and that the adopters of AI, the sort of people at the end of the supply chain that, that Jono referred to, should begin demanding and should understand how to interpret and should know what to do with and should be able to read a, an SBOM for an AI-based system and be able to see uh, what are the what are the risks that they're taking on board. Because again, increasingly, every industry, every sector across multiple kinds of operations, both internal as well as consumer facing, uh, as well as, as Jono said, the whole ICS, industrial control system, uh, physical computer interface world, AI is going to be in all of those things. And people... Adopting software products, uh, implementing things into their systems need to have a way to know what are the risks that they're taking on board. And, and that's, to my mind, what transparency is all about. So is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, just um, stay tuned. This is an extremely rapidly developing field, the amount that has happened since we convened our workshop last summer and today is just remarkable. Um, we talked at the workshop last year about reconvening 
And um, I think that's on us, but I'm hoping we can get uh, folks together for one or more follow-on discussions and follow-on reports and basically try to keep ratcheting up the, the awareness and the shared knowledge around these issues. AI is here to stay. It clearly has huge benefits, but it comes with risks. And um, everything we know about security, just like everything we know about privacy, but everything we know about security says you have to build it in from the outset. You can't bolt it on afterwards. Jono? I obviously agree with Jim on this. I The thing that I really feel is important out of a lot of this topic is that AI systems can learn a lot from what we know about building and securing software systems. There are going to be nuances that are important that we need to figure out the answers to what the exact best process is, but that the machine learning engineering community, the policy community, the cybersecurity community should work together on communicating what building security in, because that's not just the process of you build the system and then you let it out into the world. Building security in means all of the processes for being transparent about the problems as they arise, for managing the vulnerabilities as they arise, for responsibly communicating with people who need to know what your development decisions were so that you can be transparent about it and people can make their asset management decisions, their usage decisions. And I look forward to continued development in the space where those three communities really come together and build a really great understanding of what it means to build security into AI systems through vulnerability management, transparency, all of the things that we talk about in the report. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks, Stephanie. Really great. Thanks, Jono. Yeah, thank you both very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.